All right, let's get started. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. We're here in the Canada Goose Base Camp at the Sundance Film Festival. My name's Eric Cohn, and I'm from IndieWire, and I do a weekly podcast called Screen Talk, usually with my sparring partner, Ann Thompson. She's not here, but I have two very well-equipped colleagues, Ryan Latanzio and Kate Erbland, who are going to help me sort of parse the Sundance buzz. And if you're milling about at the coffee bar or out on the balcony, we hope you'll come in and join us because it's always a really cool opportunity to kind of talk about what Sundance is really about in terms of movies and experiences. And to me, what's always kind of fascinating is that everybody has like a different way in. So Sundance is sort of like this ritual. And the first time you go, it's this really overwhelming thing and it kind of sticks with you for your, your entire life in a way. And, and certainly every time you come back, you sort of define your experience uh, based on that first time. So I wanted to start out by talking about first times at Sundance and how that sort of impacted you. So, um, Ryan, why don't you start, first of all, how many Sundances is this for you? And, um, and why don't we go from there? Well, um, if we're counting in person, this is only my second. Um, I have done the last few at-home versions, but otherwise my first was in 2015. Um, I don't remember what was the grand jury winner that year, but that was the year uh, of The Witch, which I remember was a major discovery. Um, you know, and that's you know that's one of my favorite movies now. And I was in like one of the first screenings of that movie, and uh, yeah, that was my first time really seeing a movie that no one else had seen together with an audience. And you know, that is kind of a, a revelatory uh, experience. I mean, yeah, I mean that was a wild year. There was like another there were a, another party where like a filmmaker who is um, very renowned. Uh, I met at a party, and he was extremely drunk. And uh, he was not renowned then, but is now. And this was, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of those things uh, that you don't forget. Right. So you, the movies are really memorable, but so are the people and the way that they kind of let their guard down in this environment. So Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I accidentally walked away from that festival with Anya Taylor-Joy's pass, and I still have it somewhere. And so if she listens to this, like, get in touch with me, and that's I will a really good uh, little piece of ephemera. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's very uh, earnest of you to, to confess and not just stick it on eBay or something at this point. Uh, well, Kate, what about you? How many Sundances is this? I count in-person and virtual, which means this is my 14th Sundance. Uh, my first one was 2010. And it was funny, Eric was sort of doing like a rapid fire. How many years? First one, movie you remember. And it's still, and the movie I remember the best was Winter's Bone. I remember going and seeing it at Eccles with a huge crowd. It had already screened, but everyone said this is the one, and, and they were right. So I like to count virtual also because when it was going on, we were at pretty, pretty much as busy as we are here because it, it takes a lot of effort to consume so many movies in such a short period of time, and we're doing interviews. I would try to throw condo parties where I'd send a Zoom link around and tell people to come by my quote-unquote condo at 10 o'clock, and we'd have 40 people on there with overlapping dialogue and stuff. But... If you count that, this is year 17 for me. Uh, if, if you don't, it's 15, which also feels significant. But one way or the other, Sundance was like a real life-changing experience for me when I came in 2007, and um, Little Miss Sunshine had, had sold the year before. So everyone was like, what's this year's Little Miss Sunshine? It was such a big deal that this movie sold for like $20 million, which is actually fascinating to think about because as we're recording today, Netflix bought a movie for $20 million. So we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but I remember seeing this great great movie called Great World of Sound from Craig Zobel, and it was his first feature. Um, he was just a really fascinating guy. He was a co-creator of Home Star Runner, and he had made this really cool kind of like 
drama, satire of the music world. And I befriended his whole crew at a party. And they were like, why don't you come see our movie? We'll give you a ride. And then it turned out it was in Salt Lake City. And so all of a sudden I was like in Salt Lake City for a while. And I, I had a lot of experiences like that at the festival where I just kind of like followed people around and then met all these interesting characters. And then a lot of them became really good friends of mine and so forth. And I always enjoy that aspect of Sundance because even if we do count virtual, it's just not the same. And what's really interesting this year is that there's a lot of movies that seem like they're benefiting from Sundance being in person. So I want to talk a bit about the films that we're seeing this year. It's quite an array of, of different kinds of films and it's getting, they're getting a lot of different kinds of reactions. And we can talk about sales, but I also want to just talk about the experiences that you've had watching movies in theaters. We watched some stuff in advance. We have that luxury as journalists, but um, Ryan, was there anything you saw in a theater that really had an impact on you during the festival? Yeah, well, one of my first uh, in-person screenings here was the world premiere of Fair Play uh, with Alden Ehrenreich and Phoebe Denever as this couple uh, who also work together in a sort of very high-stakes financial firm, but uh, none of their colleagues know that they are in a relationship, so they've kept it secret. Um, but then uh, Phoebe Denever's character, her name is Emily, she gets a promotion that Alden Ehrenreich's thought he was going to get. And so then the movie becomes about the ever-shifting um, gender and power dynamics that are sort of running between them. And it's just, it's a wild, crazy movie full of insane twists uh, that they, they have this really like crackling, explosive chemistry. There's these really graphic kind of crazy sex scenes, including one involving menstrual blood. Like there are just a lot of very shocking moments. And I think everyone in the, the screening um, and in fact, we were sitting right behind several of the jury members, um, was really kind of electrified by this movie and everyone came out of it talking about it. And so it was like, it was a great, uh, kickoff to the festival for that to be like my first, uh, big, you know, in, in person screen. I mean, you could, you could feel the tension and when something crazy would happen, we had an unnamed colleague also sitting with us who every time went, Oh God. And wow. And that's not something that you're going to get at home, which is why, you know, we will talk about sales, but Fair Play just sold to Netflix for $20 million. And I certainly hope that there's a theatrical component there because it was so fun to watch with an audience. I really love the film, but that experience was great. Yeah, so let's talk about that because Netflix, we know, I mean, we, we've had the head of Netflix on this podcast before and he will openly admit that theatrical is not part of the business model. Right, So you sell to Netflix, you know what you're giving up. And I have to say, I have had conversations with filmmakers at events here where I ask them about their sales expectations. More and more I'm hearing people say things like, well, I can't control it if someone's going to watch my movie on the phone. I love having it in a the theater, but I know that you know I can't be you know too impractical about these things, stuff like that. So I think it's interesting to look at that side of things. I mean, do you think that this movie would still be satisfying on a small screen? I think so. I mean, it, it really is a fresh take on what, what have started to feel like tired um, perspectives on Me Too that we've seen in, in a lot of these kind of indie movies. And this one really turns that on its head. And in fact, you know, at the end of the movie, like people are cheering for one of the characters and it's like, mm, you're, I don't know if you really should be cheering for this person. Like these people are both really sick. So what I'm saying here is that this movie, I think that a young audience would really respond to it. And a lot of younger audiences prefer to watch their movies at home, I feel like. And so I, I think it would work 
on any screen, but I, I, I would imagine that the best experience for this movie is in a packed theater. Okay, and, and by the way, some people have already experienced this movie on a small screen because of the virtual component of the festival. We don't know how many at this point. We'll see how many tickets were sold, but people are watching these movies all over the country, and I think it's a really interesting moment right now to think about like how that experience translates all over the place. I went to Magazine Dreams to the, the first screening that they had for that one, and, and this is a, a really wild movie experience. I mean, similar to Fair Play, I would say that it, it plays with audience expectation. It, it makes you uncomfortable it's um Jonathan Majors is a bodybuilder who's kind of his his perception of reality is sort of unraveling it's a bit like taxi driver or something like that and you don't know if he's going insane or, or what the situation is there and there are some violent things that happen and, and I won't spoil them but you could feel that in, in the room right and that's a this is a sales title you watch it and you think Jonathan Majors is going for that Oscar you know I'm sure that these things are being discussed but then you know when the price tag goes up and so forth it is really hard to get a sense for you know well how does that translate into the new streaming model how do you get people to watch these things i mean i really enjoyed fair play i actually think on netflix it could do really well because it's the kind of movie that it's just it's not too long and it's very satisfying like the last few beats of it are, are like there's real payoff in that movie and i won't spoil it so i i bet like that will have a good sort of word of mouth social media life of, of some sort but magazine dreams is it's a really tough movie to watch so. I was I was also at that screening and I was sitting in one of the back rows of Eccles with our, our friend and colleague Leah Greenblatt from Entertainment Weekly and for the last half hour we just kept grabbing each other and clutching each other because it's so tense and you really don't know where it's going and there were some distributors sitting right behind us. Michael Barker was right behind us. And I was wondering maybe um, how this might impact how he sees the film to see, you know, critics who see a lot of movies having a very like, physical reaction to what we were seeing in a giant theater with hundreds and hundreds of other people. And you can't replicate that. Yeah, I mean, look, with the right distributor, Jonathan Majors is a lock for an Oscar nomination and possibly even a win, you know? Um, and I know it's very early to make that call, but it really seems like that kind of performance, he really takes himself to those lengths. But it is, it is a punishing sit, and it's hard to... I mean, I think it's easy to recommend to cinephiles and people who appreciate, appreciate the craft of movies, but like, I'm not going to tell my mom to watch this movie on Netflix. You know what I mean? And in fact, I watched it on the viewing on the online platform and um, found myself uh, needing to take a break a few times. And so, the streaming component for that movie—I don't know if that's the ideal home or not—but it already sounds like there's a lot of interested buyers in that one. It's very honest of you to admit that you needed to take a break. I mean, it's a, a lot of people try to pretend that they're like purists about these things at home, but the reality is that everybody gets distracted when you can be distracted. And the theatrical element is, is really what kind of changes things. Um, I'm curious about another movie that played here. Did you both see uh, Theater theater Camp? So Theater Camp is another big sale this week for what we hear is $10 million to Searchlight. There was one unnamed trade that called them Fox Searchlight. They haven't been called that for a few years. But at Sundance, maybe they are still Fox Searchlight. And sort of, it's a state of mind. Like I said at the beginning, I mean, Little Miss Sunshine, that was a big sale. But even before that, they bought things like Napoleon Dynamite. So this was an entity that really, in the kind of the modern era, created the sense of the the uplifting crowd pleaser that can sell for a lot of money. Everybody sees that commercial potential. It almost felt like reverse engineered in a way. And this is a very fun, lighthearted mockumentary of sorts uh, with Ben Platt and a bunch of other really fun faces in it. But, you know, when I was watching, I was just like, well, if this doesn't sell, then everything is broken. So I'm curious, like, do you think something like this, right, which is a searchlight deal in 2023 goes to Hulu, 
Does that train like do people want to go see something called theater camp outside of the the kind of Sundance hype? Well, I know that the theater camp deal involves a theatrical component, which I think really makes sense for this because it was it's fun with a crowd, but it was also like clearly we were in a crowd with theater kids, and I don't know if you're going to see this in any other theater. You're going to get that. Uh, that same contingent, but these people really enjoyed it and felt super seen. I never went to any summer camp and I still really enjoyed myself. But yeah, it's interesting that the deal specifically mentions, yes, theatrical for theater camp. Now, Ryan, you saw a movie that's opening this week at midnight a couple nights ago, Infinity Pool, and I feel like we're obliged to talk about it, not just because it's opening this week, so if you missed it here, you can go see it in theaters, because it's a bonkers movie, and it's it's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm like so curious to, to find out what the rest of the world makes of it, because the Sundance reaction to a movie that divides people is just like, it's just really hard to tell, you know, how that translates beyond this bubble. So what was it like watching this totally crazy movie about a guy who becomes obsessed with basically watching his clone die over and over again. Um, what was it like watching that with an audience? Yeah, that, so I was at the midnight world premiere screening of that, and it was definitely a little bit of a scene. Alexander Skarsgård was there, Mia Goth was there. I think it was both of their first, their first times actually sitting down to see the movie, and they sat through it. Um, and yeah, no, it was definitely a lively crowd. I mean, for fans of midnight movies that are soulless and cold, but have a plethora of ideas and ambitions, then this probably is a movie for you. I mean, it's extremely graphic. There is a, I mean, a body double, but there is Alexander Skarsgård ejaculating. There are various uh, close-ups on knives penetrating his torso. Because I, I don't want to spoil what the movie's about, but there is this doppelganger doubling sort of conceit that Brandon Cronenberg has devised. That is, you know, it's... That? I mean, what original. I just said about the clone, that's... You could say it's a spoiler, but you really have, it's a movie you really have to watch to fully understand, too. And Neon already has it. And I, I assume that Sundance is like a launch pad, in, in other words, just to like immediately get people to know that it's out there. Because like it's, it's not enough to just release a movie like that you know, after some Sundance buzz. You need like a lot of like discourse around it and stuff. So uh, it's, it's cool that you went to that. I saw it at a noon screening with a bunch of press people. And there were definitely some walkouts and stuff from, from people. But actually, I really enjoyed I thought it was really funny, uh, which, which caught me off guard because it was just like so absurd. Uh, but also, I appreciated that they were showing the unrated version, uh, which is a, the cut that uh, they would have had an NC-17 for. And so that was sort of a unique Sundance experience as well. But the fact that Neon had that movie here, there's a couple films here that, uh, you know, came here with distribution. And that's one thing at the opening press conference, um, I asked the, the programmers to talk about, you know, is there anything you've noticed that's sort of like a trend or connective tissue between the films? There's a lot of movies that are kind of significant movies at the festival that aren't looking for deals. So something like Past Lives is one of several A24 films that are here. It's this really beautiful Korean-American story about kind of a love, a love triangle of sorts. Did either, either of you get a chance to see uh, Past Lives? I'm seeing it tomorrow. I'll be seeing it tomorrow. I have seen one of the other A24 titles, or two of them, actually. But Yeah, and, and so, so this film, I think, was a, a, a really savvy move by A24, because it's also going to the Berlin Film Festival, um, but it didn't have much buzz going into it. It doesn't have massive stars or anything. It's not a crazy midnight movie or whatever. 
Um, but it's the kind of thing where you could see the enthusiasm building and building and building. All the reviews are really good. Eventually, it winds up, say, in the fall festivals, and the enthusiasm continues, and then maybe it's an awards player. Um, but the I mean, uh, our review, our review title alone was "It's destined to be one of the best films of 2023." It's a pretty bold thing to say in the third week of January. Yeah, but yeah. you feel it. And someone told me it's going to be like this year's After Sun, and so we we kind of know what what a momentous, um, you know build up and journey that movie has had. And so what was the other A24 movie that you got a chance to check out? Um, I saw and reviewed Earth Mama, which is excellent. Um, the directorial debut of Savannah Leaf, who uh, is a an Olympian volleyball player turned filmmaker. And uh, she, uh, this film, she uses um, primarily non-professional actors. It's about a young black mother who's expecting her third child. The other two are in foster care and she's trying to get them back. Um, but while also dealing with uh, recovering from drug addiction. And so on paper, it sounds like this kind of grueling kitchen sink, miserable kind of movie, but it really is not that at all. It's quite like transcendent and wondrous and creative and, and, and really beautiful. Um, and then the other one Kate and I both saw last night is the Nicole Hall of Center. You hurt my feelings. And my review is posted on IndieWire. No, it's a, it's a minor low key Nicole Hall of Center dramedy that has a fantastic Julia Louis-Dreyfus performance. But I think my whole thing is even a minor Nicole Hall of Center film is a real treat. And it was nice to see with an audience because a lot of people, I laughed a lot, but there were a lot of people around us who were laughing hysterically at things. And I think that made me laugh a little bit more than I might have. Yeah, I mean, every minor low-key Nicole Hall of Center entry is a minor low-key Nicole Hall of Center entry, right? But um, no, they're all delightful in their own ways. But that's one that I think that that movie could find success on streaming as well. Like That didn't feel as um, urgent a sort of theatrical experience, as fun as it was to see it in the Eccles with a big crowd. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, inevitably, everybody is part of the streaming market. And so when you see movies in this context, in some cases, they're designed to enhance what the streaming experience is for people. Oh, that Sundance movie is finally on Amazon or Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. I saw Cassandro a little while ago, and Amazon hadn't dated that movie yet. And you know, I'm sure if it hadn't gone well for them, they could have just dumped it on Amazon Prime. But it actually got really good reviews. So we're expecting they might relaunch it in the fall, maybe do an awards push for Gal Garcia Bernal. So you see like marketing plans just coming together for certain films in real time. And what's encouraging about that is that it's not like you can flip a switch and just like turn the industry off, you know, or like stop the movies from being relevant. You know, there's so much doom and gloom. And we talk about it week after week, like box office is dropping and, you know, the sky is falling, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, you know, all this stuff is around you that that's like it's still happening. People are still making stuff. Um, and, you know, I was, I was thinking about this because the other night in the same room where we were recording, we had a, a party for first-time filmmakers here. And uh, there was just, like, so much enthusiasm in the room from people who were at Sundance for the first time. Um, are there any other first features that have really stood out to you this year uh, from filmmakers who you think could really go far? Bad Behavior from Alice Englert, who, yes, is Jane Campion's daughter, um, but is very much doing her own thing. She has a very wicked sense of humor, and it's a fantastic role for Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly plays a former child star whose life has not really turned out, so she is going to a silent retreat where her guru is played by Ben Wishaw, who is really unexpected in this. And meanwhile, her daughter, who is played by Alice, is trying to be a stunt performer, 
in New Zealand. So they're a world apart from each other and they are both behaving badly, but in very funny, relatable ways that you still love them. And it's hard to believe it's her first feature because it's, it's very fully formed. Yeah, it's interesting how a number of the first features here, um, like Earth Mama that I just mentioned, already have distribution. One really strong one that we actually we said we honored the filmmaker in our in our panel over the weekend. You um, you spoke with her, A.V. Rockwell's A Thousand and One, which um, already has is coming out from Focus at some point later this year. Um, Tayana Taylor gives a really excellent performance as this sort of free-spirited woman who whose son is in foster care. Again, this is sort of a theme of some of these movies. And she kidnaps him out of foster care. And then we see their lives transform over the next 20 years in Harlem. And, it, and it's it's it has the textures of almost like a Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret kind of movie. It's just a, it's sort of like a big New York kind of opus um, with really sophisticated filmmaking and um you know, she did a short for Searchlight a few years ago. She was part of that that program. Yeah, the Tribeca. Yeah, um, no, and she and she's a really strong filmmaker, and definitely like her her whatever her sophomore effort is 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 going to be really strong. We also had on this pan on the panel. You mentioned uh, the director of the movie Mutt, which is a, a really fascinating debut because in some ways it's it's a kind of a formula for an American indie you've seen before the scrappy New York story, day in a life of things going wrong. Um, but from a trans perspective, which with a, with an amazing actor as a discovery as its center, and I do feel like a lot of times that's what's kind of cool about coming to Sundance is this sense of like. It's about bringing stories you haven't seen before, even if you think like the template is familiar, like some of the faces are new. And that's always really exciting to see. And also just to like bring this back to what I was talking about earlier, just like meeting the people and finding yourself not just in a screening room all the time. That was the thing that no matter how many Zoom links I sent out in the last two editions in, in the virtual years, uh, I couldn't replicate because you see people and you recognize them from the movies or you just have a chance to kind of engage with them. And it's like the ultimate like, leveling effect like everybody's like at parties that are overcrowded in condos and like accidentally taking their shoes off and getting their feet covered in ice and you know it's I've just had like so many interesting conversations with directors and, and actors and agents and distributors and so forth um and and you know like last night for example I went to a condo party for the film Rotting in the Sun which is this wild movie from, from Sebastian Silva which I think maybe you, you've seen um and I'm definitely not going to spoil this one because his movies are always about like starting as like kind of light comedies and they get really dark and crazy so there's a great twist in this one that nobody's going to see coming um and uh and Sebastian Silva's in it he plays himself Jordan Firstman's in it plays himself and they were both there at this party partying like themselves so it felt like a, a sort of like an extension of the movie and it's just like I love that idea of like you can just like continue to live in the experience of the movies that you're seeing now Ryan you talked before about seeing some filmmaker punch a wall but this this year are there any other uh more let's say constructive interactions that you've had with people outside of the screenings themselves um yeah, you know, uh, actually, I I had already seen Riding the Sun, but I went to the premiere last night, and that was a bit of a scene. There, that was a little bit of a who's who, um, you know, obviously with Jordan Firstman being in the movie. Um, you know, that movie's sort of waiting for acquisition still, but I think they're certainly going to be interest. I mean, I, I, I have not seen that many... I've, dicks in a movie seeking narrative distribution um maybe it says, ever it says more than 40 but i don't yeah. think anyone's counted yeah. yet so um 
You know, yeah, like as far as the conversations I've had with people, um, you know, coming out of Fair Play, there was a lot of debate about what we had just seen. Um, even with um, out of I coming out of Eileen, um, which is looking for distribution as well, the William Oldroyd movie adapting the Otessa Mushvag novel. I've actually talked to a lot of people here who've read that book and feel that it's a really uh, faithful adaptation. And yeah, I felt like coming out of that screening, there was there was a lot of chatter for sure. Well, I kind of like being in line with regular people, like not press, not industry, and hearing what they like. And yesterday I was, or the day before, I don't know, the days run together. There were these older ladies who had just seen the Judy Bloom documentary, Judy Bloom Forever, and they loved it, as I did. And they were talking about her, and they were so excited. And I turned around, and I was like, you know, there's there's another Judy Bloom film coming out this year. There's an adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, that's coming out in April. And these these women were so delighted. They're like, what, really? And I was like, yes, I've seen it. It's very good. So I am single-handedly trying to bring about the Judy Blumessance. But I just love hearing people who are obviously here because they love movies, but they're not, you know, luckily for them, they're not as plugged in as we are and getting to share stories about what's coming next and what they might love. And that's the stuff that I really like to do in line. Side note, so in, in that documentary, which I really enjoyed, you see how Judy Bloom has this bookstore in Key West that she like goes to every day. And um, I got a recent copy from that bookstore because I, I go to Key West quite a bit. Uh, and uh, of, of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which she signed to my one-year-old daughter. And, and what she wrote when she signed it was, I hope you enjoy the book, but don't read it until you're older. So tomorrow morning, the Oscar nominations are going to drop, and we're all going to be up early for that. It's been a couple of years since the Oscars, actually, th this part of the Oscar season overlapped with Sundance. And what's kind of remarkable about it is, like, you really feel like you're living in two worlds at once, right? Like, we, we hinted at some awards possibilities here, you know, Jonathan Majors or whatever, but... It, it's so far removed for these movies to really get into that right now. I'm wondering what, sort of, what, what you feel about kind of the, the nature of award season when you're at Sundance and sort of looking at movies through a different lens. I mean, or are you looking at movies and constantly thinking about Oscars because that's what we've been trained to do? Well, we have been trying to do that. And so, of course, it's hard to take that hat off. And, you know, my, but it's like my mention of magazine dreams. Like, it's just, just so obviously an Oscar caliber kind of performance. Whereas most of these other movies here, I don't think quite so easily fit that mold. Um, it's interesting having that going on in tandem with this because I feel really disconnected from the Oscars right now. And this, this feels like the shot of adrenaline that the movies kind of needed. As much as Sundance is just a microcosm and is not the rest of the world, right? But it's like, you know, we still have two months of the Oscars season two more months of talking about tar and everything everywhere all at once you know these movies that we i don't i mean I'm, i can't speak for everyone but movies that i loved a few months ago that now it, the mention of them like a, a bloody tear starts to roll down my eye it's like it trains you to, to not like the things yeah. that you like yeah. or something no it feels like we're here and all of a sudden we're we're in 2023 but tomorrow morning we're going to be rocketed back to 2022 and for me I've sort of I've staked out tomorrow morning until early afternoon that that's Oscar nom time um, and then I'll be back into Sundance land I'm trying not to think about it too much but you know back to my line listening Last night, I was standing in the line for something, and another member of the press from one of our sister brands was talking about a film that he really, really loved. He's like, this was great. It was really wonderful, but it has no chance at any Oscars. And even I was like, well, what does that matter? And I didn't say anything, but I, I still like to have that in my brain, and I was happy that I was still able to think that way. Like, if it's great and you love it and you want to share it with other people, 
who cares? Yeah, yeah. No, we we have an unnamed colleague who will we'll see a movie and will be like, well, it's not an Oscar contender. And it's like, okay, but then, you know, that's... But it's good. It doesn't have to be all it is, you know? Yeah, I mean, if anything, you know, the Oscars could move in more of a direction of embracing weirder movies, you know, in the next few years. We know that the, there are more younger members coming in. It's getting more international and so forth. So things could keep evolving on that front. But it's also not the only barometer for success. And it's also not the only barometer for commercial success. Like, a movie like Fair Play, getting the 20 million dollar deal does not mean that's going to end up being an oscar movie it means that it could be a very popular movie on netflix and that itself could be a metric for success even if by oscar season we've essentially been forced to forget it by the news cycle so i guess that's sort of tbd i do want to leave a couple minutes for questions so if you have a question just stick your hand in the air and we'll start with you right there sir and we've got a microphone so we can get you recorded Oh, okay. Um, so in the last couple of years, the trend that I've at least seen is that you go see a movie and immediately Amazon comes up. So it's like, okay, I know this is going to be on Amazon. A couple of years ago, the Taylor Swift documentary came on the exact same day on Netflix as it was in the festival. Do you feel like it's great that we already know that they're going to have that exposure? Because years and years ago, it was maybe I won't ever get to see this again if I don't come. But now it's like it's already been bought. What's the even point of coming? What do you think going forward that's going to look like? Yeah, I've had so many conversations with different people in the industry about this because it was actually very controversial for the festival to keep its virtual component. Um, there are some companies like A24, let's say, who don't like that because they like the kind of specialness and the exclusivity of this environment. And once you put it on streaming, it kind of it, it makes it more diffuse. And that's what happens with streaming in general. It's what happens with day and date releasing a lot of times, right? Why go see it in the theater? So the festival gives it that special push. But then in other movies just need all the eyeballs on them they possibly can get. So I think what we're going to see more and more, and maybe YouTube can, can weigh in, but, but for me it seems like people just need the, the opportunity to choose what makes sense for the right kinds of movies. And there are definitely movies here where if everyone in 50 states can watch them right now and there's buzz coming out of Sundance, that's really good for them. And then there are others where like that slow build and all of us being the only people who can see these movies right now is like hugely valuable. So I think we're going to see more of this, but it's going to be an open-ended question for some time. This is somewhat related, and this is a story I've been telling a lot. I think any information that people can get out about when you can see a film and how you can see a film is so important. But we have, we and the rest of the industry, distributors have not nailed it down. Because the story I tell is, does it, I don't know if you guys saw it last year during the virtual, good luck to you, Leo Grand. It was this wonderful, beloved film starring the great Emma Thompson. Hulu picked it up. It was on Hulu in the spring. In December, I did a SAG Q&A with Emma Thompson. It was a packed house. People had great questions. They loved her. She's incredible. But everyone kept saying, when is this coming out? When can I tell my friends about this? And these are people who are, they're SAG members. They're in other guilds. They're obviously huge Emma Thompson super fans. And I was like, it's been available on Hulu for more than six months. And there's just, we all have to do a better job about spreading. It's part of our job too. But these people were floored, and I keep seeing that. And I think when you can tell someone, no, you can go see this in a theater next week. You can watch it on Netflix in two months. I think that's really, really valuable. What movies are, are you guys looking forward to seeing now that we have a few more days to go? Well, so tomorrow I'm going to do Oscar stuff in the morning, and then I have lined up. I'm going to go see uh, Past Lives, Cassandro, and oh, man, what was the other one? Forget the seeing, um, we're seeing Landscape with Invisible Hand later today. Yes, and Rye Lane. Mm -hmm. So I've sort of lined up stuff that I'm not on deck to have to write about right now, but I, I wanted to 
to give myself plenty of stuff to watch. And I want to watch Passages on the app. And, oh, I still want to watch the Michael J. Fox documentary, which I'll probably also watch on the app. I'm going to try to see Floor and, and Floor and Son, yes. the new John Carney musical, which, I mean, I, I'm the cynical type. I want to see the crazy W2F movies here. But I also, after watching a lot of that stuff, could use some escape. So if this is a kind of more lighthearted uh, musical comedy of sorts, as, as I hear it is, then I feel like it's a good note to go No, on. I was at the premiere yesterday. And at the end, obviously, it ends with a big musical number. And spontaneously, everyone started clapping along. And I haven't seen that in maybe not even since Sing Street, another wonderful John Carney film that premiered here. I'm going to make an effort tomorrow to see this um, Xavier Dolan episodic, um, The Night That Logan Died. Am I saying that? Um, right. Yeah. And because uh, his last movie was a little bit of a misfire, but I thought it was um, the, the Death and Life of John F. Donovan, but I thought it was still ambitious as all his movies are, and I will follow him wherever he goes, of course. And then to that point, I think Passages just got out of its screening, and I did see that one, and that is one of my favorite movies of the festival. Um, it's a really, it's kind of a dark uh, exploration of like the destructive power of desire uh, to destroy your selfhood, your your relationship dynamic. I kind of have described it to people as almost like a gay version of Mike Nichols' Closer, set in Paris. <laughs> So Put that on a, in, a, in a trailer and you're golden. When Iris Axe, we were talking about Nicole Holofstein earlier. Iris Axe is another one where it's like you always got to show up for Iris Axe. So, I mean, I feel like it's it's always important to remember, like for all the like Sundance breakout mythology, like there are major directors who still need attention in the festival environment. And that one will also go on to Berlin. So it's going to have more of an international profile and so forth. Um, any other questions before we kind of reach the climax of this podcast? One more thing really quickly. So when I first came to Sundance in 2007, I had been following a lot of journalists um, over the course of my time here. And one who is sort of like a legend to me is my regular sparring partner, Ann Thompson. And she has come to so many Sundances over the years. And it really is a bummer not to have her here, even though it's great that we can have you up here for the podcast. So before we wrap, can you all say hi to her on the count of three? Just say hi, Ann. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, I'll send it over to her. Thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll see you around the festival.